0: Well, we are picking back up in our sermon series on resilience. Um, This is our second week doing that. Uh, And if you remember, resilience is that quality that allows someone to adapt well or bounce back from trauma, adversity, or tragedy, um, or other sources of stress. And so last week we looked at Naomi and how she lost her husband and her two sons, and how she came home. No longer Naomi, no longer uh, pleasant, but Mara, bitter. And so uh, she had done two things that I mentioned as being really important. Uh, she found a supportive companion for her journey, her, her daughter-in-law Ruth. Uh, but she also was vulnerable and courageous enough to share that she was just in a bitter state. and She needed to be vulnerable about where she was. Um, but today, we have to deal with the financial reality of being widows in the ancient world. So they're going to have to figure out how to survive uh, and they were in a, in a culture in which there wasn't a lot of options for women by themselves and so as widows uh, they're going to try to do the only things they can find to do to survive. And so uh, I, I might ask how can I boost my resilience through poverty but I felt like that might be too kind of individualistic and our culture is that way uh, we live in a very individualistic culture, even though we're very social beings. Uh, humans like to be around each other. Uh, even our most introverted selves still need to find other people and communities. Uh, if, if I were to look at my bank account and have a negative balance, I'd say I'm bankrupt. Uh, sometimes people see somebody on the street who, who might be homeless and they'd say something like, uh, you know, I wonder what they did, what he or she did to end up that way. Uh, but I think that we're all much more connected than that, sometimes better for better, sometimes for worse, Uh, and lacking is not just an individual problem, lacking is a community problem. So when one of us suffers and when one of us is in need, we're all suffering a little bit and we're all a little bit in need. And so the question that I want to ask then is, uh, what's our role in responding to needs in our community? How can we boost resilience through poverty? So I don't want to think about it just as an individualistic thing. But how is this a group project that we're all a part of? uh, And what can we learn from this story? And so to answer that, I want to talk about uh, two mindsets. There's a mindset of scarcity and a mindset of abundance. And so if you operate from a mindset of scarcity, uh, what you think is there's only like a zero-sum game. There's only a certain amount of honor, or a certain amount of money, or a certain amount of food, or whatever it is. And if I get more, someone else is going to get less. And so I'm in competition, I'm trying to fight over every little last bit. Um, If I get the promotion, it means that everybody else's status is dropped, or something like that. And so you're playing this zero-sum game. Or you can have a mindset of abundance, where you think that there's going to be enough. There's a trust that there's going to be plenty, that if we share, that if we work together, uh, we will be able to provide for one another. And so when you have that kind of mindset that there's going to be enough, you can share honor. It's okay that you get some sort of nice prestigious award or get the credit for something, because I can just celebrate that. It doesn't mean that I've lost anything. Uh, if you get finances or power or whatever else whatever else it is, that's okay, because. We're opening ourselves up to the possibility um, and to a new day, and there's enough. And so I think that we see that mindset at work in this text. Um, You know, the very first thing is that Ruth and Naomi in this chapter operate out of a mindset of abundance and that they realize they have some extended family. Last chapter, we saw all that they had lost. They lost so many people that were dear to them. Um, but they're still an extended family and a community to belong with. And so when Naomi and Ruth go about their day, they realize that they still have a family connection. Uh, and it helps them that it's to a prominent rich man in the story. Uh, but it's from her, Naomi's husband's family, uh, and his name was Boaz. And I don't want us to forget that no matter how isolated we feel, we always can have a family. Um, You know, I I think about when Beth and I, we've traveled uh, since we've gotten married. We've moved to Atlanta and moved to Milwaukee and moved here to Jackson. And each time we do that, we've noticed that we don't have friends or family in this new place. And yet, you find friends and family uh, and they meet you in that new space. Uh, And you might be in a place where uh, maybe you were abandoned, maybe you were orphaned, maybe you were left. Uh, behind by people who shouldn't have done that. But if we allow ourselves, we notice we do have a family. We have people who try to care for us, who try to connect with us. Even if someone in- ends up in prison, and it's supposed to feel like this isolated thing, but suddenly you have prison mates, and you have other people that are a part of that community, uh, we have this strong, resilient way of finding more community. Uh, and so Ruth and Naomi take advantage of that and realize, okay, we've lost some people that really matter to us, but there are still some other people out there, we can find another community again. And so, uh, Naomi and Ruth go about trying to survive in this new world and try to reconnect with a new family. And so, uh, there's another thing that happens if you have a mindset of abundance. That kind of mindset ends up creating some economic systems that support and provide for the needy. And this kind of go unnoticed in this text, um, Ruth goes to do something that she's allowed to do in the biblical text. Uh, she goes to work behind the workers of a field, and they're instructed that they're supposed to gather and harvest their food, but not to harvest everything, to leave some behind for those in need. And so the Hebrew Bible actually gives some laws to protect the poor. Leviticus 19:9 9 and 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Uh, There's a fun rabbinical tradition that argues about what are the very edges of your field. How do I follow out this command of not reaping the very edges of the field? Uh, Deuteronomy 24 says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, So you were harvesting stuff, and you left something behind. You shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And so the law's perspective, which seems to be actually being lived out in the story, is that uh, you might be a wealthy person and you might think I should harvest everything I have to maximize profits, to make myself, build myself up. But actually, that's not how community is supposed to work. That's not how society is supposed to work. Um, but you should care for those by leaving some behind. You left some, some of your harvest behind on the ground. Instead of going back and grabbing every last piece, leave it there because there's somebody in need who could use that. And so we don't maximize profits. We share in our abundance. And I also appreciate that the law was to benefit the stranger in their midst, the alien, uh, the outsider, not just the insiders, but whoever happened upon the field could take and have some food and survive. And so that's what Ruth plans to do. She goes to work, um, not because she has a salary, not because... (coughs) She has an employer, Uh, she goes to work behind the actual workers. So they're harvesting fields, they're, they're slicing the grain down, and she's trying to go behind them and catch all the little bits that get left behind. And that's how she's surviving. And so, our struggle is that even if we have legislative practices that try to institute abundance, people's natural tendency towards scarcity still rains. So you might be trying to survive poverty, uh, but that's incredibly hard when your community turns against you or dehumanizes you. And there's a lot of examples in the story that seem to hint at this. Um, There's a fear that she's not going to be able to get enough food. I mean, that's just a real one. Uh, She's trying to find a field that she can get enough to survive on. Uh, There's a fear that she's going to suffer from exhaustion because there's this part in the text about being able to drink water and having access to it. But if you're working in the field all day without access to water, and think about in that time, you can't just turn a faucet on. Um, so if you're, if you're exhausted from working the field, can you even get to water? Are they going to allow you to use their resources of that well? Um, so there's a fear that maybe you're going to die of exhaustion. There's a fear that you're going to be mistreated, abused in the field. Um, Boaz says in the part that we read, but Naomi at the end of the chapter also says it to Ruth. Uh, Boaz says, I've ordered that the men not bother you. That's a very subtle way of talking. Um, The Hebrew text says uh, that they will not touch you. And it could be touch as in harm, but there are other kinds of harm that you can imagine. Uh, And so there's a very real danger that she's an unprotected woman out in the fields, uh, that she will be abused in that situation. Uh, There's a risk that they might shame her ridicule her for her situation. Um, It it wouldn't be a pleasant scenario having to go out in the fields in her situation. And so, um, maybe you've been harmed on your journey. The dog-eat-dog world. Someone who tries to get ahead and um, sabotages you at work or in a friendship and trying to get their own seat of honor. And maybe that makes you want to retaliate. So you keep that cycle going. You keep uh, that scarcity mindset moving forward in the community. Um, and that would be an easy decision. But what's really beautiful in this text is what we see in the model of Boaz and how he models an abundant mindset. And I think he models an abundant mindset not just because he follows the law, but because he goes beyond it. Like, it's one thing to do what you're told, and it's another to go out you know, above and beyond the call of duty. And there's a whole, like, field of ethics that talks about this kind of a thing of, all right, there's some things you shouldn't do that are forbidden. There's some things that are kind of murky, neutral ground. Then there's some things that you you must do. But then there's some good things that maybe I can't even require everybody to do. It's It's such a wonderful act and so giving or so gracious that we can celebrate it, but maybe I can't require it. And that's the kind of behavior that you get out of Boaz in this story. Um, And we didn't read these particular verses in this chapter, um, but Boaz notices Ruth in the field, and he asks about her. And so his servants kind of give a report about him before he comes and talks to her. And I think it's important to note that an abundant mindset sees needs and sees the humanity in others. And so he sees her, and he sees her pain and her situation and asks about her. And I don't know, know about you, but... Maybe you've experienced this, that you've walked the streets and you've seen somebody in need. And where do your eyes go? They kind of wander away. Can I avoid the situation? Do I, do I have to look at the person in need? And there's something common in that experience where people feel like I can't look. Maybe if I don't look, I don't, you know, he won't notice me or she won't notice me. Maybe I can go about my day and act like nothing's going on. And I think that part of what's happening there is if we look at someone in need, we realize our responsibility, that we're not just individuals and isolated, but that our community has problems. If we look at the person in need, we might realize that I'm also someone in need. And seeing need, I can actually empathize with that, and I can feel that. And I don't know that I want to empathize with this person. I I want to feel like I'm different and other, And so if I look at them in the eyes, I realize that we have a shared human experience, and I'm afraid to do that. Maybe we don't want to look because we're judging somebody, and so we don't want to think about them uh, in, in too positive of terms, so we just kind of are being judgmental, we don't want to look. But it's kind of a weird scenario that in our society we celebrate people that give, but we kind of ostracize people who need and who ask for something. You can't celebrate an act of giving and also demonize the need to ask for something. And so we shouldn't be afraid to look. We shouldn't be afraid to ask when we're we're in need. Uh, but, But Boaz notices. He sees Ruth out in the field and he asks about her. And even though Ruth's not one of his servants, Boaz tells Ruth that she can work alongside his young woman servants. So she's not... She doesn't have any claim to this, but yeah, you can come work with my with my workers. Uh, there's a protection that comes with that. He says, okay, you know, you can even drink from my servants' water. The young men are drawing water. Go ahead and drink from that. Don't worry about that. He instructs his workers that Ruth can even harvest among the reapers, so like instead of just getting the leftovers behind just come along as they're cutting things down let her gather at that easy spot where it's nice and easy to gather things and to harvest and not only that the servants are told to go ahead hey sometimes you know you're bundling stuff up why don't you just leave stuff for her so you're doing all this work but just leave some behind for her as well let her just take from the easy pile as well and he's incredibly gracious and incredibly abundant minded And I think it's worth asking why does Boaz do this? And Ruth wonders the same thing. How do you go from someone who worries about your own stuff and scarcity? Hey, stop taking from my field. You're cutting into my profits. Who said you could be in my field? How do you go from that mindset to one that just says, hey, let's take care of you? Come alongside, we'll keep you safe, we'll give you uh, what you need. How do you get to that spot? And so Ruth asks, why have I found favor in your sight? And actually, it's more pointed than that. Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I'm a foreigner? I'm an outsider here. Why are you treating me like an insider? Ruth is justified in asking this. It's kind of funny. uh, The book is not subtle about this thematic element. About half the times that Ruth's name is specifically mentioned in the Hebrew of this book, it's followed up by saying, "the Moabite woman, uh, Ruth, the Moabite, Ruth, the Moabite." It's like, unless you, you know, forgot, you know, let's remind you, she's a foreigner. And so, she asks, "Well, why on earth would you find would I find favor with you when I'm a foreigner? Why would you help that poor foreigner?" And I think it's because Boaz heard her story. That's an element of it. He says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you didn't know before. There's power in learning somebody's story. It's, it's easy to dehumanize somebody and to neglect them and not look at them in the eye if you don't know their story. But when you know someone's story and their past and what they're going through, it's harder to avoid them, to ignore them. And so it's easy to imagine, let us play on current events, uh, all sorts of awful things when you imagine a caravan of immigrants traveling thousands of miles away. You can imagine any story. You can imagine terrorists in their midst. You can imagine all sorts of evil intentions. But it's a different game to actually learn their stories, to actually care about their stories. It's a different different world to see the pictures of a four-year-old who says, I can't march any further. I can't move. I can't go on. And to think about what it's like to be a parent of a four-year-old, marching, just trying to find a place to survive. It's a different world to think about a story that says, Uh, I can't live through any more famines or injustices or brokenness and I'm just trying to find a place to survive. It's harder when you look at people in the eyes to ignore them and their pain. Boaz, why would you help this poor foreigner? And I think that's why it matters so much to serve at like, like the food pantry or personal care ministry. Because when you look at people in the eyes who are in need, you learn something about them and you learn something about yourself. We learn our shared humanity, that they're in need and I'm in need. And we don't live in a scarce world where I have to worry about every little bit that I have and I don't want you to get ahead, but there's enough. I want you to be able to take part in that. There's always enough. So why would we help the foreigner, the widow, the poor, the outcast? Why should we contribute to resilience against poverty? We share a responsibility for justice in our community. We are not isolated individuals. God calls a community into action. It's always the people of faith. You know, we've kind of made our our faith really individualistic that it's, I say this prayer and it's just me and God by myself. But God has called a body of people, whether it's in the nation of Israel as you read through the Old Testament, uh, whether it's the church in the New Testament, uh, it's a group of disciples, it's the men and the women following Jesus. And we are in this community project together. God is moving in, in, in amongst us all. And we have a personal experience of that, but it's not private. We live in a community. And so. Justice matters because it doesn't just matter for me, it matters for all of us. And so when Ruth goes home that day, she goes home with leftovers from her lunch that she was invited to, and with an ephah of barley, which, depending on the measurements, uh, might be something like 30 pounds of grain. And uh, some people in that time would talk about taking home like one to two pounds of grain as a servant, and here she's taking like 30 pounds Stories talk about how much abundance she gets to take home with her. And so, her and Naomi don't just have meals for the night. They have meals for several weeks when they go home that day. And we have several opportunities to share in our abundance. Whether that's the blessing box out front. Maybe it's something you want to walk by and look at. Not to kind of turn your eyes away. to, like I don't want to notice when there's nothing in the box. Because I might think about, oh, I should bring something to put it in the box. Uh, but how is it that that's the kind of, the stuff that kind of is left behind, so that those in need might find something and be able to have a little something that day? Uh, maybe it's students having books who aren't able to read uh, their own books at home in the same way that some other kids are, uh, and being generous in that way. Maybe that's Christmas shoe boxes for those who need a little source of joy, Maybe that's personal care ministry and not only the hygiene products, but sometimes people bring other kinds of abundance, uh, whether that's plants or books or all sorts of fun things. And so how can we participate in our community's justice by overflowing in abundance, by giving because there's always enough? Um, We're about to take part in a meal that symbolizes this. But there's always enough. There's always an extra spot at the table. And uh, I enjoy thinking back earlier in the year, back in Milwaukee, I was helping uh, give communion out. And I, I went over and I opened it up. So there's the bread. I opened it up. And I was like, oh no. I know there's not enough cups there. <laughs> and you can just kind of tell. You know how many people are in the room. And, and, and the church had kind of grown from it was about 60 when we started. And it was averaging more of 100. And so, like, you know, your process is you're used to one thing and suddenly, you know, in the joys of having more. Uh, but you open it up and you're like, oh, no, I have no idea how we're going to make it through this. And so we hand it off. And those poor ushers are trying to supply things to people. And they also were looking at it and realizing, oh, I don't think there's going to be enough. And so somebody kind of rushed back and they tried to start making some more cups. And they brought the more cups out. And there wasn't enough there either. And so there we are as kind of servants. We brought it all back together. And especially like for the the kind of the band and the the people on stage. like Well, we could not take or we could just take the time to have enough. And so started pouring those cups into new cups and like splitting it up, evening it out. And there was enough. Because there's always enough when you make the effort and when you care and when you open up your hearts and your eyes and your ears Uh, and that's what's so beautiful about this table and about this community of faith is when we truly open our eyes to each other and hear each other's stories and stop worrying about whether uh, I can get ahead but how can I help make sure everybody gets off the mat Uh, and that's a beautiful beautiful thing to be a part of So I want to close by mentioning uh, what Boaz says to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So today, however you've come into this space, uh, I hope that you are aware of the refuge that's here, and I hope that we open up that space to be a refuge to all who come. And I hope that that's on your minds as we take the communion elements later today so i hope that we can help transform our city ourselves this church into a place of abundance and let's make our whole community resilient to poverty would you pray with me lord we are all in need and we are all able to give to those in need as well lord and i ask that you would Open our hearts to ways in which we can share, in which we can make a safe place for others who are in danger, which we can make a place of of shade, of peace, of quiet for those in the tumultuous world. In providing, God, you journeyed with Ruth and comforted Naomi when their lives are burdened by grief. Grant us faith to believe you will provide a future where we see... Uh, that bitterness can be turned to joy, and barrenness may bear life. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.